Welcome to the Modern Law Revolution podcast sponsored by the Colorado Bar Association. This is the podcast that features the successful and happy lawyers in Colorado who are revolutionizing the practice of law. And today we have a special guest all the way from Chicago. So beyond the borders of Colorado, we're spreading this far and wide. My name is JP Box. I'm your co-host. I'm a lawyer turned entrepreneur, consultant, and author, and the immediate past chair of the CBA's Modern Law Practice Initiative. And I'm Erica Holmes, founder of EL Holmes Legal Solutions, a modern law practice focusing on family law and attorney ethics and regulation. And I am the inaugural chair of the CBA's MLPI. Now, it's been a beat since we've had uh, one of our episodes released. It's been a busy summer. And I know, Erica, you've gone through about 100 trials in the past week or two. Um, So for those folks who need a little refresher, what is the modern law revolution all about? Uh, So the revolution um, is uh, coming up with a different way of practicing law, which offers alternative business models that provide a win-win for clients and lawyers. Um, The Revolution podcast shows modern representation and action by featuring modern lawyers and community leaders, like we have wonderful ones today, to inspire and teach our listeners how to build a thriving law practice um, that offers innovative, client-driven, and cost-effective legal services for everyone. Um, And as uh, JP alluded to, today we will be focusing on revolutionizing your billing practices um, by having a very special guest. But I have to do a really quick disclosure that I realized, I think I the only reason I do this podcast is so that I get to talk to these awesome people and <laughs> have just an excuse to uh, pick your brain, Bob. So um, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm happy to do this. Before we jump right into our uh, interview with Bob, I just want to highlight this will be the first of a three-part series focused on billing. And so today our topic is the evils of the billable hour, the pitfalls of the billable hour. And in the upcoming weeks, after we lay the predicate, we're going to jump into alternate billing models. And finally, we're going to take a deep dive into unbundling. Like a lot of folks, I came into the practice of law thinking the billable hour was just something that always has been and always will be. And as you know, I started my legal career in Washington, D.C. at a big firm. And there was definitely the expectation there that, you know, as a minimum, you bill 1850 hours, but more likely you're billing over 2000. So I was at about 2250 a year. And what I found, I always prided myself on being an efficient, productive person. I never pulled all-nighters in college or law school. I was always working ahead, staying ahead of the game. But I found that that efficiency that I had honed really wasn't valuable for a law firm setting. So if I drafted a brief in six hours, that might take another associate 10 hours. It's not as if we were judged by that same level of productivity. It was, great, JP, you have you know four extra hours to bill on another case now. So I constantly felt like I was on this treadmill working against my efficiency instead of having it rewarded. And I can't tell you how many cases I was pulled on to with the lead in, you know, hey, JP, if you could use the hours, I could use your help on this case. And what it did is it myopically focused on the business side of the law rather than the practice of law. And for, you know, in my day job as a millennial lawyer consultant, For a generation that truly believes in doing well by doing good and comes to the law for altruistic reasons, like all of us do across generations, if we take this focus solely on the business of law, you know, the billable hours that we're going to achieve with this case, it actually depresses motivation in the long run. And that's certainly 
uh, what happened to me and was one of the deciding factors for me to ultimately look at new careers. So the and, billable hour almost like drove you out of the practice of law. Yes. You know, judging my life by six minute chunks. And, you know, I started in DC and when I moved back to my home city of Denver, I thought, okay, I'm going to get some reprieve from this. But what I found was the expectations were the same. The time was the same. DC is a city where you start later and end later. Denver, you start earlier and end earlier. But it was the same basic setup that I was pushing against. I'm reminded of that Henry David Thoreau talked about the price of anything is the amount of life you exchange for it, which is an old concept that I think younger lawyers especially are seizing the hold of. And when you focus so myopically on those six-minute chunks, you're literally looking at little chunks of your life slipping by as you're working rather than focusing on, you know, I'm helping this important client with an interesting case. And it's that perspective that I think permeates a lot of what we do. And I found in my research for this, I came across a pamphlet from the ABA in 1958 that kind of made me laugh, but it lamented the fact that doctors and dentists were much better at business than lawyers. And that if we could keep more meticulous time records and value our time, we could become just as good in business as those other professions. And so the ABA recommended that the average lawyer should bill 1,300 hours per year. So that's five to six hours per day, 48 weeks per year, which any law firm, if they looked at that today, would you know, say we, we can't keep our doors open that way. And You're so a part-time we, lawyer if you work 1,300 hours. <laughs> right. Or you could be an efficient lawyer who is off the billable hour and could work 1,300 hours and build a profitable practice. But with the billable hour, it's morphed into something entirely different. Um, and so you look at you know, Yale Law School, for example, calculated if you're billing 1,800 hours a year, that means you're actually going to be at work for about 2,400 hours. So those are 10-hour days for 50 weeks a year. And so just in this short period of time with the introduction of the billable hour as approved by the ABA to the present day, it's completely morphed into this monster and this motivating factor that is you know, our reason to be as lawyers. And so I'm really excited today to talk to you, Erica, and to talk to Bob Glaves about how we have gotten onto that treadmill and how we can start getting off it as well. So that's my uh, experience with the billable hour. Um, Erica, I know that you're not a, uh, a fan of it either. Definitely not. And uh, again, it was like, or with you, it was realizing how indoctrinated I had gotten into that whole concept. And for me, it was, you know, I had eaten dinner and I was cleaning up the dishes and, you know, hung up my towel. And I thought to myself, oh, point two. And I'm like, oh my God, I really am living my life like six minutes at a time. And no offense to Vin Diesel, but I'm just not cool enough to live like that or a quarter mile or whatever. But so when um, I had had it, um, you know, working for um, the firm that I was at and, um, and the billable hour being a, a big part of that, when I was starting my own firm, I went in search of, you know, if there are alternatives. The one that four years ago that I kept running into was um, the sliding scale, which can be done as an alternative billing form, but the way that I was seeing it, it was, it was just really bad for lawyers because it was just like the same concept of the billable hour, but you're just working for less money. Um, and 
bless the people that can do um, nonprofit work and the public interest lawyers. I mean, they're fantastic. We need them, but they're just better people than I am because I need to make money. <laughs> I mean, I like my stuff. I'm all about access to justice, but I want to have some stuff. And um, so finding an alternative billing method that was affordable for my clients, but at the same time was that I could make a living at and, you know, have a profit at. Um, and that's when I, you know, continue to do my research. And now I offer only unbundled services and it's all for a flat fee. Um, it has been amazing for, um, for the lawyer side of things because I get to, you know, pick exactly the work that I want. And in terms of doing a flat fee, I get my fee up front. So I have a 99.9% .9 collection rate or, and for the clients, they get this dependable price. They know what they're paying for. That is my story um, when it comes to uh, different ways of billing and um, my history. So let's turn over to our guest, Bob Glaves, um, who is the executive director of the Chicago Bar Foundation. Um, and he's been uh, in that role since October of 1999, uh, before which he had a successful nine-year career as a civil litigator in um, the Chicago law firm, then known as, and I'm going to slaughter this so you can help me, Bob, Mengis, Mikus, and Oh, just say it yourself, please. <laughs> and you're on a roll there. Mangus, Micus, and Molzahan. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um, so, but as um, the executive director of um, the uh, Chicago Bar Foundation, he's been responsible for leading and overseeing the work, the foundation's work that brings Chicago's legal community together to improve access to justice for people and uh, to make the legal system more fair and efficient for everyone. Um, and since he's been the director, He's increased the amount um, of its annual grants and fundraising more than tenfold and has played a lead role in launching a number of groundbreaking access to justice initiatives. Um, and then in all his spare time, um, Bob authors the Bobservation blog that you need to uh, check out for sure. Bob, let's hear from you. Um, and just starting off with, so what opened your eyes to the evils of the billable hour? Well, I, I have a very similar experience to you and JP in the sense that I started my career <laughs> wedded to it as well and, uh, and serving mostly business and corporate clients too in a larger firm and then in a boutique firm after that. Even then, uh, the billable hour is just, a, you realize it just doesn't, you know, I think you both really talked about how it doesn't reward efficiency. It doesn't reward anything the client might be actually after. But I started to notice my clients were afraid to call me because they were going <laughs> to be on the clock immediately. And then I also noticed if I didn't write down every one of those times a client called, I'd have worked 12 hours and I had six hours on my sheet, you know, and, and then you're like on the other side of it, you're like, oh no, this is, I, I know what I did today, but I can't, I can't like actually bill for it. And it just creates all these disincentives and crazy disincentives. And so I was able to, I was, it, for most of my time, I was in the firm that you uh, mentioned earlier, Mangus, Micus, and Molzahn, and we were small enough where we could experiment with some different billing arrangements. So a larger firm actually let you experiment? Not well, a smaller boutique firm did. In the larger firm, I don't know we could have pulled it off, you know, but, but I was able to do a few things contingent and doing some fixed fee work and other things. But the problem when you're doing it in a traditional firm that's built around the billable hour like that is, they judge everything by the billable hour still. So like if you had a contingent case and it worked, all of a sudden it looks, it compares very favorably to the billable hour, right? And then the next one that doesn't work out as well, they compare it to the billable hour. Well, that didn't work so good. 
and anybody who operates regularly on the contingent fee builds all of that in that you're you're averaging it out over a series of cases so it was pretty hard to do in that climate and not long out you know as i was just starting to really uh, wrestle with how was i going to be able to do this more is when i decided to take the plunge to move over to the chicago bar foundation initially thought i was going to do that for two or three years and it's now been 20 plus so uh <laughs> I am now uh, living a different life here, but that has never left me from that moment. And now that uh, I've been at the CBF for a while, for almost 10 years now, we've been working on what we call the Justice Entrepreneurs Project, which is an incubator to help lawyers get practices off the ground that are more innovative and are serving the middle class uh, which and small businesses that are very underserved in our current billable hour mostly based market. Uh, and so was able to bring back some of that experience and then a lot more learning from lawyers like Erica who are doing that kind of work for uh, the consumer and small business markets now and making it work. So, so that's and been in a roundabout way my experience there. Well, so, and with the incubator, like, you don't even allow them to do the billable hour, right? As you're teaching these um, wonderful young attorneys um, how to do things differently? Right. Yeah. It's out of the gate expected. You're not going to use it. You can use different kinds of alternative fee arrangements, but it's, it's definitely out of the gate. One of the expectations and, and, and how we got there. I mean, we're going to talk more about, you know, the many evils of the billable hour, but how we got there, particularly around this program being at such a fundamental element is when you're talking about people who are middle class, uh, well into the middle class really, or small businesses, they're working on budgets, you know, like most of us, uh, they, they live on budgets. And when you tell them they are going to get something and you can't tell them what it's going to cost, or sometimes you're telling them you're going to have to put a whole bunch of money up front. I'm still not going to tell you what it's going to cost. Uh, that doesn't work very well for somebody who's working on a budget. You know, it's just not something they're going to do uh, unless they absolutely have to. And what we're seeing in the legal market is a lot more people going to court on their own, a lot more people avoiding lawyers altogether because they aren't, other than like criminal defense things and things where they really know they have to do it, a lot of people are just avoiding lawyers when they don't see alternatives that they can judge in a way they judge other things in their lives. How much is it going to cost and what do I get for it? And so that is fundamentally the problem that the probably the biggest problem in the market and it is so tied to the Bill Blower, it became one of the fundamental principles our incubator is built on and the network of lawyers uh, uses. It sounds so simple when you, you know, phrase it that way that, you know, how much is it going to cost is an answer that is so difficult for so many of us in this profession. And it seems so elemental, but we've become so fixated on the billable hour that it's, you know, we quote the hourly cost and it's off to the races from there. And so I, you know, I love the work that you're doing and that Entrepreneurs for Justice are doing to really you know, let young lawyers know there's a different way to move forward. And you know, I practiced law at a big firm, a small firm, a mid-sized firm. And I figured I tried every style of law and this is just the way it is. But you know, I love the work that you all are doing to you know, open a lot of lawyers' eyes and a lot of clients' eyes that know there is another way to, to practice law that makes a lot more sense. And uh, and so and, and we are seeing people succeed with it as as Erica is and others uh, who have taken the plunge. But you know, there's such a herd mentality in our profession, and we are so hidebound. You know that you know we're still using words from 400 years ago that came over from old England, and uh, you know, and and terminology, you know, all throughout the the law that is just 
so much is based on precedent. And so I too had the same opinion when I started practicing in the early nineties that this is just the way it is. You know, this is what everybody does. They build by the hour and not realizing that really was only at that point about 20 years, really much part of our practice, the regular way people did things. When you go back further than that, the profession was not using the billable hour so much and you didn't, uh, you know, we can't prove this in any perfectly research tested way, but when you go back to the pre, pre before the seventies, you know, uh, when the bill hour was not the prevalent way of business in the profession, you saw a lot more solo small firm lawyers who could build successful lives and Erica, they could have stuff, you know, and they could, you know, they could, they weren't necessarily getting rich, but they made a very comfortable living and they uh, were in small towns, big cities, wherever. And, your everyday people, your everyday uh, small business could afford them. And there was a better functioning market. And we didn't see floods of people coming to court on their own for uh, bread and butter cases. And we didn't see these statistics like this. Uh, and our theory is it coincides pretty closely with the billable hour. Again, there is, you know, for to do this in a truly research tested way, you would have had to been tracking everybody all the way through. But that is when the market really started to go south for for your everyday person and your regular practitioners trying to serve them because we've just effectively priced the regular the quote unquote regular guy and i don't mean guy in the you know the literal sense there i mean your regular person has been priced out of the market uh we did it we did it as a profession you know whoever sent that memo out we all got it without realizing we got it right you know we just started doing it and to break that cycle, it's it happens one person at a time, one program at a time, one firm at a time, and uh, we're thrilled what you're doing in Colorado to really bring these concepts to a larger audience and, and get people thinking differently because it's better for everybody if we can make the market work where lawyers are serving clients and can get paid a reasonable fair price for that and give them good services that they need. Well, um, so you've alluded to the the uncertainty in price with the billable hour. What would you list as um, th maybe the top two or three ma other major flaws in charging by the hour? Yeah, uncertainty is a big one, but I, I think maybe even before that one is, what are they actually coming to you as a lawyer for? Um, you know, they're coming to you because they want a problem solved. They're trying to manage a risk. They have a question that's burning inside them that, you know, if they're trying to start a business or something that they're not sure about and it's sort of paralyzing them, you know, whatever it is, they're coming to you with an issue that they want you to help them resolve. We're that, so what we're selling them is a solution to that, right? But what are we selling them? We're selling them time. Uh, and so if the solution takes five minutes or it takes five years, that might affect the price you want to charge them. But like the value to them is the same if you're giving them the solution. That's what they're looking for. So we're, we're selling them something completely differently than what they're coming to us for. And so uh, I, I have a friend, you know, this to prove that I'm old, you know, because I mentioned I started practicing in the early 90s. A story I use a lot, one of my good friends, he was in a big firm at that time too. And um, we were all, lit we were litigators. And um, we used to get, you know, the deposition transcripts literally in transcribed form in big packets, you know, and, and we'd review them and mark them up after we got them and get ready for trials, you know, and figure out, you know, where you're going to impeach witnesses by marking pages and things like that. And at some point in the early nineties, they started coming with a flappy disc in the back, you know, a back envelope. 
and uh, I remember you when they started to show up, we weren't all that tech savvy back then. Uh, uh, I would usually look at it and not realize what it was for, usually throw it in the garbage or something and do things the way I normally did it, right? And so uh, he was uh, he's a very smart guy, but he was doing IP law. And so he had a big patent case where he had a stack of 10 really long depositions that a partner brought into his office and said, I need you to go through these all these depositions here and find out everywhere they said the word X. And I can't remember the word that it was, but it was very relevant because it was an IP case, you know. And this was going to take a really long time to go through all those deposition transcripts. And uh, and my friend Dave, he said, did it? Did you notice if it came with a flappy disk? And he goes, a what? You know, and, and uh, so similar to my reaction, right? And so the partner looks and goes, yeah, there's one in there. And he goes, well, I could get you that answer in like five minutes. And uh, the partner kind of like, was went silent for a minute and he he said well if you get that answer in five minutes my partners are going to kill me uh, was, you know what that's the, you know like you know because that on the billable hour model you just took something that was going to take about 50 hours and turn it into five minutes but i tell that story because the value to the client didn't change one iota in fact, it was probably more accurate with the floppy disk than somebody who's well into the seventh transcript who might miss the word when they're looking for it, right? Uh, and uh, so not only, and, and it was faster too, which is another thing the client usually likes, you know? So if you're talking about how time's relevant to the client and what they come to you with, almost always it's, they prefer to have, have something done faster. They value it being resolved more quickly. So the billable hour just kills you in those situations. So um, I, I can use another example from my own practice in a, where I was happened to be representing an individual pro bono, but uh, it had the potential to turn into a paying class action case because it was such a scam uh, with this credit card company. Uh, and um, had I been practicing, I probably would have charged this differently, but let's say I was doing it on the billable hour. This guy had a problem. He was stuck with a credit card agreement he didn't agree to and a deposit that they were keeping of his. And this clearly was a pattern that the company was using. And I wrote a great letter for him, uh, you know, a demand letter, you know, give him his money back, you rescind this right now or you're gonna get sued. And, um, and they did, they actually listened, right? So I wrote this great letter in half an hour, and sometimes you could do this on the phone even for less time, uh, that resolved his case, got him his money back, and they were gonna leave him alone forever. His credit record was clean. That was an amazing result for that guy. Now, if I was billing by the hour, I would add half an hour of billable time there. Uh, now, that is just so backwards for for the lawyer and the client, right? But those are some of my favorite examples from my uh, life before this. Well, no, and that, to me, that is what really struck me with the billable hour is that it immediately puts you in conflict with your own client because they want you to go as fast as possible so they pay as little as possible and you want to go as you know slow as possible so that you make as much money as possible and so how is that starting off a relationship <laughs> when you're supposed to be trust and and it's supposed to be about the law um i mean you're just immediately in inherent conflict and i think even when there's you know not the kind of the you know the example that you gave bob of you know well why why are we going to search the floppy disks and we can do it with a highlighter and paper. Even when there's not that kind of calculus, there's also, I think, kind of a willful blindness of, you know, let's not search for better ways to do things as time goes on. 
let's keep doing what we're doing. Let's stick with this system because it is giving us the hours. But I think as you point out, there's that disconnect between, you know, the value and what the client is actually seeking in the first place. And a question I have for you, kind of taking a step back, you know, you had joked that, you know, everyone kind of got the memo at the same time in the 1970s for moving to the billable hour. But what, in your estimation, really pushed that forward as the way lawyers decide to value their own work? What was the, the impetus to make the billable hour so prevalent throughout law firms? Yeah, how it happened that quickly is sort of amazing. But there was, um, there was an antitrust case brought. So I guess what, for your typical bread and butter practice, the bar associations, and I assume they did this in Colorado, apparently we did in Chicago, had rate scales of what you would charge for different kinds of matters and lawyers all charged them. And uh, it's, this is how the airlines used to operate once upon a time too. And uh, it's funny that lawyers were price fixing, uh, but that's kind of what that was, uh, you, know, that, you know, and that we got called on it, but apparently we did. Uh, somebody sued and they said that's antitrust to be dictating the price you're gonna charge for the services. So that was correct, you know, the correct decision, obviously, you shouldn't be like saying everybody has to get X price. Uh, however, the idea that it all had to shift to the billable hour was like a complete overreaction, right? I mean, you could have charged different flat fees, different subscription fees, because not everything is amenable. I think in your next episode, you'll get into different arrangements. I mean, some things that are going to go on for a while, it might be hard to give a right, you know, a good fixed fee estimate right up front that's going to work for everybody, but you could do it on a monthly basis, perhaps, you know? Well, so clients obviously, uh, or it's obvious why clients would dislike the billable hour for exactly, you know, the reasons that you were saying. Um, and I mean, when most lawyers, you talk to them, you know, do they love working by the billable hour? No, um, they, you know, they really don't either. Um, but why are we not switching? What are the like? What are the biggest barriers with nobody being really happy? Like, why are we not switching to something different? Yeah, well, the herd mentality that you two have described well, and I think we've all talked about here, is is a big factor, right? You know, you're 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 running against the crowd still to try to do that, and in a conservative, precedent-based profession, that's hard to do. Uh, but so that's one of the problems. But I think it's it's also just. No one ever taught this in law school, and we don't typically get taught anything differently, certainly not in firms that are based on it. They're not teaching you how to do alternative arrangements or why those might be attractive to clients. Uh, you all are doing it through this initiative, which is great. We're starting to do it more through the JEP here and through our bar to try to just expose people to there is a different way. There is another way you can do this. And uh, and Erica, you pointed out some of the reasons why it's really a good thing for the lawyers too, and JP as well. You know, like, uh, you know, you, you know what you're getting. You, you know, you you sort of have much more control over your own life when you're when you're using these other arrangements to bill as opposed to the billable hour. But the other thing that I think we have to get over is um, there's this mentality that if something if I can't figure out how long something's going to take, for sure. Uh, I can't give you a price. And so like, again, as a former litigator, I hear that a lot in litigation. Well, we can't possibly, can't possibly tell you what that's going to cost. And, uh, and you might not be able to, but you know what, if you know, you're, if you know what you're doing and you know what kind of case it is, you can probably estimate what 
generally is going to go into it and think about some different ways you might price it. And again, you'll talk about that more in the next time. But some of it is just really getting past that idea that like something took you longer, automatically you lost. Um, if something, if you're doing something that consistently takes you longer every single time, well, fine. Okay. Then maybe that's not a good, maybe you don't have that right. But the idea that anytime something takes longer than you thought it was going to the risk falls on the client and never on you is just a, it's a, it doesn't make any sense. And again, it doesn't, it's not a, a it's not going to, you know, it's not going to work. We're already starting to lose to technology-based solutions that aren't as good for people a lot of times just because they have fixed prices uh, and people know what they're getting. And, uh, you know, you're just going to lose out every time uh, without getting past that mentality and really thinking about, you know what, if you really average it out. And I will tell one more story from experience that you all, you both may have seen this too, but uh, in the early part of my, I was doing mostly commercial litigation towards the end, but I was doing tort litigation at the beginning. So the lawyers on the other side often were contingent fee lawyers. Uh, so it'd be personal injury, product liability, cases like that. And I was looking at like, you know, we'd be in a lot of different firms for depositions and things like that, trials. And uh, the bigger personal injury firms in Chicago that we'd be up against, just one day I was kind of looking at how they're structured. And we, we both... The firm I was in and, and them had about the same number of people, but the ratio of lawyers to other people in the firm was completely upside down. So we had almost all lawyers and then a few paralegals and some other administrative support. They had very few lawyers, lots of paralegals, lots of other experts that they'd brought in because they were billing contingent fee. They only had an incentive to use lawyers for anything lawyers really needed to do. They had every incentive to use these other professionals and other people to do the other things that they could do, where we, billing by the hour, had every incentive to use lawyers for anything we possibly could use lawyers for. And you look at, we were working on the same exact cases. So, you know, to, that's, it's a roundabout way to get back to your question is like, we think, oh yeah, there's no way we could predict this or there's no way we could do this. Well, yes, there is. I mean, I, I think we could, we have, there, if you do litigation for long enough, you're gonna start to figure out what goes into these cases and some are going to take you longer and some are going to take not as long and that's okay. Right. As long as you're pricing it in a way that's going to measure, you know, balance out over time. And I, and I think the key with all of this is, you know, we're selling ourselves and our clients short when we assume there's no way we can offer the certainty that our clients coming to us. It's an uncertain time for our clients and they need our help, whether it's with a business matter, whether it's litigation, whether it's a family matter, and you know, to the extent that we can offer them certainty, all the better. Um, you know, and Bob, you had mentioned with you know all these different legal proxy services. I mean, in the state of California, a quarter of all new corporation uh, secretary of state filings are done through LegalZoom, and so just huge swaths of business have decided we're not even going to look at a lawyer because. I know I can go to LegalZoom.com and it'll cost me X dollars and I know what I'm getting myself into. And it's, it's a system, I think, that very eloquently you've described that doesn't serve lawyers or clients well. It doesn't provide that value. Yeah, it gets them, a, it gets them the immediate result, but a good lawyer advising a, a startup business is talking them through like the form of your business. Is this the right form of your business? You know, what, what you know, what other things that go into it, the form that the lawyer prepares is like the least of the, the value that the lawyer is giving. It's, it's a critical outcome of it, right? But the, if you're selling forms, you're, you're in a losing 
it's a losing proposition to begin with, right? You're selling the advice you're giving this startup business about how to structure, how to protect, you know, not, you know, manage risk, not avoid risk. You can't avoid risk in life, you know, manage risks. Um, and, uh, and what kind of things they should be thinking about as they start to stage up. And, and even LegalZoom has figured out they're selling ins legal insurance plans on the back end where people often do want to talk to a lawyer after they've used that service now. And um, they can buy these legal insurance plans to do that. Um, but boy, if you were a lawyer serving that market and you just charge the way they're charging up front to compete with that, um, doesn't have to be the exact same price, but if you just did some of the same things, you'd be a lot more competitive in that market uh, and a lot more valuable to the client, to your point, JP. For sure. Well, Bob, we could monopolize your whole afternoon talking to you about the billable hour, but I want to let you go. It's a Friday afternoon here. Um, but thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your experiences, and uh, giving a lot of us a lot of good uh, details to focus on as we you know, look at the billable hour closely and start looking at how do we shift away from it. So thank you so much, Bob. Thanks. Enjoyed being with you. Thanks again. So that does our episode on the evils of the billable hour. Um, again, there is hope around the corner. Our next episode is going to take a dive into alternate billing arrangements. And then our third episode in this series, again, we'll look closely at the wonderful world of unbundling. Um, Erica, before we sign off, we have very exciting news with a revolution hotline. Can you tell us about that? Yes, um, we are thrilled to announce um, the launching of the How to Start a Revolution helpline. So if you have any questions for Bob or um, uh, other presenters that you've heard us talk to up to this point, or there's topics that you'd like to have covered in the podcast, um, just call the Revolution Hotline and leave us a message. Uh, we will actually play your question on the next uh, podcast, um, and we will provide an answer. So um, make sure to leave your name and the name of your firm or organization so that everyone knows who their fellow revolutionaries are. And um, the phone number is 303 824 5399. That's 303-824-5399. Um, and that will also be posted on the MLPI community page. So um, those of you driving right now um, can uh, get it later. And so welcome to the revolution. Um, you've got questions and we've got answers. Looking forward to hearing from you all. And thank you for joining us on the revolution today. Mm -hmm.